as we said earlier, this is the first Sunday of Advent. <clears throat> you may have come out of other uh, Christian traditions where they didn't celebrate Advent, or uh, this may be kind of a new word to you, but Advent uh, is a word um, that is, <clears throat> comes to us from the Latin word Adventus. Uh, it is a word when translated into English means coming. Uh, it was translated from, Latin, or from Greek into Latin uh, from the word perusia. But it's this idea of coming, uh, of an anticipation of some kind. There's something out there that's coming. I, I think about that, and I think sometimes about uh, my calendar. You know, on any given week, uh, I, I tend to work towards Sunday. When we get to Sunday, it's like, uh, this is when the family comes together. These are the things that, as we gather, I look forward to in the week. Uh, but then as I hit Monday, it's my day off, and I'll usually get to Monday evening, and I start thinking about, okay, what's this week? What's the next thing? And I open up my calendar, and there's always something coming. Now, wouldn't you like, I, I bet every one of us at some point along the way say, I just wish there was a week when there was nothing coming, you know, where, where there wasn't anything I had to do or whatever, and I could just sit back and do, I think they call that vacation, right? But at any rate, you know, we always have something coming. And if it's, if it's something that, that is going to be hard, we may be dreading that a little bit. But, but if it's something that's good, then it builds this anticipation. When I, when I look to those things that, that, are, that are coming, that are really good, my, you know, my heart beats a little faster. I get kind of excited. Oh, yeah, you know, there's a couple of these things to do, but this is coming. It's going to be great. It's going to be awesome. And so if you can kind of tap into that feeling, that's really uh, kind of the feeling of Advent, uh, of this anticipation. And the word that we're going to explore today is this word hope. Because wrapped up in this anticipation is this whole idea of something that we hope for. Uh, I can remember uh, Christmases when I was a kid, that great anticipation I had. You know, I can remember sitting down sometimes with a, with a catalog uh, and, you know, the, the Monkey Ward catalog or the Sears catalog and, uh, you know, Montgomery Ward, not Monkey. Everybody knows what I'm But anyway... Yeah, you guys don't even know what a catalog is, some of you. Uh, we used to have things like with pictures in these big books that were kind of like magazines, only they were really thick, and it had a whole toy section in it, and you could leaf through it rather than going online and looking at things, and, and it would have pictures of racetracks and, you know, and all kinds of things, and we would go through and circle things, which was a big, big hint to our parents. Yeah, we hoped that they would leaf through that magazine, that book, and, and see what we had circled and think, oh, I wonder what I'll get for Claire. Look, this is circled. Hmm, I wonder if he'd like that. And so there was, this, there was this hope that somehow maybe my parents would get the hint, you know, and once in a while it worked, and sometimes it didn't. But it wasn't just that. It wasn't just the toys. I mean, I always looked forward to Christmas because our family would come together because of the music and the singing. Uh, I, I would anticipate... Uh, all of the, the lights and, and the decorations and that sort of thing, uh, coming together at church and some of the activities we would have there, the whole package, I, I loved it all. And so each year as we would come into December, uh, I would begin to grow in my anticipation and hope of what this year was gonna be like and how that was all going to come about. And I still feel that way uh, even today as we come in to the Christmas season. Well, so we're gonna talk about hope today, and this idea of a coming, you know, and part of the Advent season is us getting in touch 
with the first coming of Jesus into the world and the hope that he was bringing. But it's a hope that goes back all the way to the beginning of creation. And it's a hope that continues with us and will until the end when this world comes to a close. And so this morning, as we think about this hope, I want us to understand it's not a a wishy-washy hope we're talking about today. It's not a, I hope that I win the lottery, or it's not a, I hope I don't get another necktie for Christmas kind of hope, okay? It's a hope that's based on the promise of the God of the universe. It's a hope that's couched within the evidences that we see in history of what God has done so far. And if he promised these things and did this in the past, if he has been faithful and true to these things, then I can trust that what I hope for in the future, he will provide. He will fulfill, in fact. And so this morning we're gonna talk about this, but first uh, let me start with and talk about how this hope developed through the ages. And the first thought I would have you uh, think about is we begin with the need for hope. Our starting point is this need for hope. Evangelist Billy Graham uh, shared a story once about how his wife was asked to share on a TV show. It was a, it was a thing they were doing for kids and they wanted her to share the Christmas story. And so she said, well, I don't know if you'd want me to share the Christmas story or not. It's kind of funny, you hear somebody say, okay, share the Christmas story. What do you think, how do you think it started? You know, twas the night before Christmas and all through the house, right? I hate it when they do that. You know, you watch these shows on TV and you say, okay, kids, let's all sit down and we're gonna, we're gonna tell the Christmas story and the lights dim a little bit and there's this little music in the background and all of a sudden it says, uh, it was the night before Christmas. And I think, no, that's not the Christmas story, right? They should start with, you know, an angel came to Mary and said, you know, you're gonna have a child. Or they should start with Joseph or they should start with them going to Bethlehem or something else, but the real Christmas story, right? But they asked Ruth Graham Bell, they said, would you share the story? She says, I don't think you want to hear our Christmas story. They said, well, we just want the one you tell at your house each Christmas. She goes, yeah, that's the one I'm talking about. And, and so Billy Graham shared then why she had said that. He says, because when, we, when she starts the Christmas story, this is how she starts. Now the serpent was more crafty than any of the wild animals the Lord God had made. <laughs> That's how she starts. And he said to the woman, did God really say that you must not eat of any tree in the garden? And Billy goes on to explain, he says, when people come to our house and she tells that story, starts that way, they say, what, what in the world does Adam and Eve in the fall have to do with Christmas? Uh, To which Billy replied, everything. Without the story of sin in the Old Testament, what can the good news of the New Testament say? Without sin, we have no need of a savior. We cannot separate our joy at Christ's coming from our desperate need for him. Unless we have witnessed the tragedy of man's separation from God through the millennia before Bethlehem, then the birth of a baby in a stable is just that for us and no more. Our need for hope is seen in the fall, the moment when the world was broken, when the first people were separated from God, separated from each other, separated from creation even. Everything was broken and death entered into the world. 
and there was nothing people could do about it. Nothing anyone could do about it except for God. It was in that moment even that God, who is ever merciful and compassionate, gave us hope. In Genesis 3, the Christmas story begins. Do you realize that? God spells out the consequences for Adam and Eve's betrayal, and he begins then with the serpent whom Satan had used to tempt Eve. And this is what God says to the serpent. He says, cursed are you above all livestock and all wild animals. You will crawl on your belly and you'll eat dust all the days of your life. And I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and hers. He will crush your head and you will strike his heel. Verse 15, kind of a strange verse. Starts out with God speaking about the serpent and Eve and, and then their offspring, which he speaks of in the plural. But then God changes tense and gender by saying to the serpent, he will crush your head and you will bruise or strike his heel. This is a foreshadowing of Jesus, the one who would crush Satan, even as Satan wounds him. It is the cross and the resurrection in miniature. It is the beginning of hope that God gives to people. And I'm sure that Adam and Eve and their descendants, as they went forward and as they considered these words of God, wondered at what he had said. And yes, hoped. Because in these words, they could hear, if they listened carefully, they could hear that, was God going to mend what is broken? Was God going to fix what we have shattered? Is he gonna heal it all? And if they listened carefully, they could hear it in these words. There is this truth, this ongoing truth, that we live in a broken world filled with death. And it's true that people through time have lived their lives plagued by a sinful nature, struggling to find their way back to God, and unable to truly do so. Yet God has given us hope, which brings us to a second thought, and that is this. As we progress then through the Old Testament, we see a growing hope. We see this growing hope. As we look back in history, we see a growing hope. In Genesis 12, God calls a man named Abram, who God later renamed Abraham, and God asks Abram to leave his country, people, and home and go to a land he had never seen. He says, go to the land where I am sending you. And in faith, Abram does what God asks him to do. And then God says to him in Genesis 12, I will make you into a great nation, and I will bless you. I will make your name great, and you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and whoever curses you I will curse, and all peoples on earth will be blessed through you. All peoples on earth will be blessed through you. God is taking action on behalf of mankind. He starts with one man, and he asks him to follow him and walk in faith. And he promises to bless him, but it is not only him, it's all people of the earth, people for all time. This is a huge statement that God is making here. It's all encompassing. It's gigantic. And 
it was most likely something beyond Abram's imagining. But it is a statement of hope for all human beings. Somehow in the future, God's telling Abram, I'm going to bless all people and I'm starting with you. And it's gonna happen. Moving forward in history, God would bring Abraham's descendants out of Egypt. He would mold them into a nation. He would give them his laws to live by and establish a system of sacrifices to build hope. Do you ever think about the sacrifices that, were, that the Israelites were required? If you read in the Old Testament, the sacrifices they're required to give, uh, the, the taking of the life of a lamb or a bull or a goat as they did those things, why? Why would God do something like that? It was a messy business. We tend to see pictures and it seems all pristine with all the priests in white and everything's clean and everything. But, you know, it was, it was pretty messy. You start cutting open animals and it, it doesn't stay clean very long. Why would God do that? Do we ever look at it as understanding it in the, through the eyes of hope? God is saying, this is what it costs. Your sin, your betrayal, your brokenness, this is what is done. Your life is forfeit. And they bring then this sacrifice in the hope that this is going to somehow take care of that sin. Somehow bring them back. Somehow do that. But, but it was, again, only a foreshadowing because it was not, not the sacrifice of animals that was gonna make them right but was a vision of the future for the Lamb of God who would come. The one who would be the sacrifice. And so even in the midst of that, God gives them hope. And he gives them more. He, he tells them, he says, uh, you know, build a, a, an ark, okay? And, and when you think ark, I'm not talking about the big boat, okay? He's building a box, a gold box with the cherubim on top, the ark of the covenant. And he tells them, this is where my presence is is going to reside. And so why would he do that? I mean, because God tells him everywhere in scripture, I'm not housed in any one place. Uh, I'm everywhere. I can be anywhere. You can find me. If you want to stop and drop to your knees anywhere you are, God is there with you, right? And yet for his people, he wanted them to understand uh, that, that he desired to be in their presence and wanted them to desire to be in his presence. And so he does this to give them hope. It's a message of hope. And he gives them the tabernacle and he gives them eventually the temple that they could go there and they would have this place. Not that it would become an idol or anything like that, but a message of hope that just as in the beginning, when God talked with Adam and Eve face to face in the garden and he walked with them every day, that one day that's gonna be true again. One day we can come into God's presence at any time, we can live in God's presence and walk with him again. And so he builds their hope through these things. Well, moving on through the years, God raises up a shepherd boy named David and he makes him king of his people to carry on God's promise. And God says to David in 2 Samuel 7, he says, your house and your kingdom will endure forever before me. Your throne will be established forever. God again establishes his covenant, his promise with David that David's descendants, and as we know specifically one descendant, will rule as king forever. And this is not some, you know, overstatement or hyperbole on God's part. He's not just saying, yeah, forever, you know, like we talk, oh, that's forever. He says, I literally mean forever. 
That's what he's saying. He's talking about a promise of eternity for mankind through a king of David's line. God is giving David and his people hope. And now as they consider God's words, they can look back through history, these people that were even in David's time, they can look back and say, well, you know, God has, has done all this for us in the past. He brought our people out of Egypt with great and wondrous signs. He led us through the wilderness back to the promised land. He's done all these things and now he's established as a kingdom. And can you see, as history rolls forward, their hope is growing and building based on the evidence. And so when God tells them something, they say, he must be going to do it. We can hope for this one who will come in David's line because look what he's done already. So we look and we wait and we hope. Well, it would have been nice to, to read through the rest of the Old Testament and see that God's people ever always just followed God, right? <laughs> they didn't. Even the kings in David's line led their people into the worship of idols, took them away from the God who had promised them and tried to give them hope, such that God withdrew his hand of protection from them and we find that, that other nations came in and, and ran over them, conquered them, you know, subjected them even carrying them away into captivity. Yet even in the midst of that, God is trying to build hope. He sends prophets, you know, and I say prophets, many prophets, to speak to the people, to tell them that God still loves them, that God's not finished with them, to call them back and say, leave those idols you, you worshiped. Quit being false. Come, I'm the one that loves you. I'm the only true God. Come back to me, and, and when you do, I'm going to bless you. And I'm going to continue to honor my promise through David. And so prophets like Isaiah come and share that message. Isaiah being one of the greatest. And Isaiah comes to them, and we've read these passages, but I'm gonna go over them again because they're so powerful. But Isaiah says, uh, for to us a child is born, to us, a son is given and the government will be on his shoulders and he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the greatness of his government and peace, there will be no end. He will reign on David's throne and over his kingdom, establishing and upholding it with justice and righteousness from that time on and forever. The zeal of the Lord Almighty will accomplish this. In other words, God is really excited about doing this. Okay? Now we look today at that and we think, oh yeah, that's Jesus. <laughs> but for the people of Isaiah's time as they hear this, they think, wow, even in the midst of these things that seem to be falling apart all around us, even in the midst of our own rebellion, God is promising that he's going to send a Messiah, an anointed one. And that whole idea of Messiah, in Hebrew it's Messiah, in Greek it's Christ. Uh, it means in English, the anointed, or the anointed one. And the anointing was most often given in the Old Testament for a king or a priest, of which he is both and more. And so there's the, this anointed one that's coming. God is building hope. And those people probably thought, this is gonna be awesome. We're gonna have a king like that? This is the one he promised? It's gonna be great. <laughs> but then Isaiah speaks again. 
Isaiah 53. I'm going to read this. It's a bit long, but it's all powerful. Who has believed our message? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? He grew up before him like a tender shoot and like a root out of dry ground. He had no beauty or majesty to attract us to him, nothing in his appearance that we should desire him. Okay, I hope already you're picturing Jesus. Picture in your mind what the New Testament tells us about who Jesus was and how he acted. You know, there was nothing that would draw us to him. He was despised and rejected by mankind, a man of suffering and familiar with pain, like one from whom people hide their faces, he was despised, and we held him in low esteem. This is, this is Isaiah speaking hundreds of years before Jesus came. Surely he took up our pain and bore our suffering, yet we considered him punished by God, stricken by him and afflicted, but he was pierced for our transgressions, he was crushed for our iniquities, iniquities, our sins, our rebellion, our betrayal. The punishment that brought us peace was on him, and by his wounds we are healed. We all like sheep have gone astray. Each of us has turned to our own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity, the sin, the betrayal of us all. He was oppressed and afflicted, Yet he did not open his mouth. He was led like a lamb to the slaughter and as a sheep before its shears is silent, so he did not open his mouth. By oppression and judgment, he was taken away. Yet who of his generation protested? No one seemed to care. For he was cut off from the land of the living. For the transgression of my people, he was punished. He was assigned a grave with the wicked and with the rich in his death. And though he had done no violence, nor was any deceit in his mouth, yet it was the Lord's will to crush him and to cause him to suffer. And though the Lord makes his life an offering for sin, he will see his offspring and prolong his days, and the will of the Lord will prosper in his hand. After he has suffered, he will see the light of life and be satisfied. By his knowledge, my righteous servant will justify many, and he will bear their iniquities." Again, you see this theme that keeps coming back? He will bear their sin. There. Who's the there? <laughs> We're the there. He will bear our sin, our betrayal, our iniquities. Therefore, I will give him a portion among the great, and he will divide the spoils with the strong, because he poured out his life into death and was numbered with the transgressors, for he bore the sin of many and made intercession for the transgressors. What a powerful, powerful passage. Isaiah is describing the suffering Messiah. Now, if you're the people of his time, you know, the, the Isaiah 9 passage where he talks about wonderful counselor, mighty God, everlasting father, prince of peace, that sounds awesome. Yeah, we, we look to a king like that, a powerful king who will establish his kingdom forever. But then Isaiah starts talking about this suffering servant thing. This is the way people are gonna treat that king. This is what they're gonna to do to him. They're gonna kill him. They didn't know, the people of Isaiah's time didn't know what to do. In fact, generations of Hebrews that would come afterwards weren't sure what to do with that passage. Some of their teachers tried to interpret it as this is not talking about the Messiah, it's talking about Israel, Israel itself. That, that we as Israel, they would say, are the suffering servant. We're the ones that this has happened to. 
But when you lay this up beside Jesus and how he lived, how can it be any more clear? See, they, they had kind of lost sight of the big picture. Their thinking was too small. They were only looking at the problems they're in in their moment, at the nations who were, who were keeping them down of what they wanted in terms of, of a powerful nation like David had had and Solomon and that sort of thing. That's what they were looking to. They weren't going back to Genesis and saying, the world is broken. There's no place for us here because we were separated from our God. And now through Isaiah, God is giving them a huge boost to their hope of healing, of salvation, of a new world, of a new us. And it's all through this suffering Messiah, this king who's going to come and die and then live again. It's all there. But they didn't see it. They didn't see it. Now I want to say it was not all. There were some who knew, some who God placed in strategic places, some even uh, to help give us hope. I think of right after Jesus was born and uh, Mary and Joseph took him to the temple for his dedication. And, and as they're walking through the temple courts, this guy named Simeon comes up. He's an old man, right? And, and I don't know if they knew who he was. I don't know if he'd been a fixture there for so long. They had some understanding, but he comes up and he says, give me the baby. <laughs> If I was a new dad, I'd been kind of like, oh, what are you talking about? I can give you my baby. But it's a, let me hold, and he holds the baby. And what we find out is that God had promised him that he would not die until he had seen the Messiah. And so he's holding this baby and he says, sovereign Lord. You know, so here's this guy holding your baby and all of a sudden he looks up to heaven and begins to pray. And he says, sovereign Lord, as you have promised, you may now dismiss your servant in peace. For my eyes have seen your salvation, which you have prepared in the sight of all nations, a light for revelation to the Gentiles and the glory of your people Israel. This is the Messiah. This is the one for the whole world. And Simeon says, now I can die in peace because I know I have seen my hope has been fulfilled. This child is here. So what about us? You know, I, I pause here because it just occurs to me to, to think, is our thinking too small? Can we sometimes miss the Messiah? You know, do we get so caught in, in our in our problems, in the things that are beating me down right now, you know, and in some ways I wanna, I wanna say the small things, although I know when we're in them, because I have the same experience as you do, they seem like mountains. The sin that I'm battling, uh, the, the problems that come my way, I, I create some of them. Some of them just fall on my head because other people <laughs> or whatever. And I look at them and they seem huge. And I, I can begin to lose hope. And I dare not do that because the Messiah who came, came for us, yes, for what we look forward to in the future, but, 
but for right now. And I can know him and I do know him. And because I know him, he's placed his Holy Spirit in me. And he walks, literally walks with me through the middle of my problems. I am never alone. We had a sermon about that. I am never alone. You are never alone if you have Jesus. And so even in the midst of your problems, you have a hope. When things look their darkest, there is a hope. Now, God does not always stop every bad thing from happening. Wouldn't it be nice if once you became a Christian, nothing bad ever happened to you again? That is not true. That's not even what Jesus talks about. Jesus told his followers, you think it's tough now, you follow me, it's gonna get worse. (laughs) Oh, there's a great recruiting line that you could use. Come be my follower and things will get worse. No, but he's saying, you're gonna have to suffer for me because you're gonna take a stand. And there's things you're gonna experience and I'm not always gonna stop every bad thing from happening to my people. Look at the disciples. All but John were killed for their faith, were murdered, were martyred. Why do we think we'll have it better than they? And yet we ask the question, and I think it's a valid question, but, but God, I need you now. What about what I'm going through now? And he does provide power and he does heal and he does fix things. Maybe not every time. Sometimes he's gonna say, my grace is sufficient for you. You gotta walk through this. But time and again, he continues to help us and he walks beside us and he cries with us and rejoices with us and walks us along. But in the end, this world is not our place. It is a temporary place. We have a hope that is greater than the things we're facing right now. So we trust in him now, we call out to him now, always in the midst of our hope that Lord, we know something better is coming. And so that brings us then to this last idea. We have a continuing hope that sees us through each day, no matter what happens. It's a continuing hope. And the apostle Paul kind of says it this way in Romans 8. He says, I consider that our present sufferings are not worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed in us. For the creation waits in eager expectation for the children of God to be revealed. Isn't that The whole world is waiting for us to be revealed. For us to be shown to be who we are. The children of God. For the creation was subjected to frustration, not by its own choice, but by the will of the one who subjected it in hope that the creation itself will be liberated from its bondage to decay and brought into the freedom and glory of the children of God. We know that the whole creation has been groaning as in the pains of childbirth right up until the present time. Not only so, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit In other words, first fruits means the best. We have God's Holy Spirit in us. We're the ones who have that, who follow Jesus. We have the first fruits of the Spirit and we groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for our adoption to sonship, the redemption of our bodies. We await eagerly for that day when Jesus returns. For in this hope, we were saved. But hope that is seen is no hope at all. Who hopes for what they already have? But if we hope for what we do not yet have, we wait for it patiently. So what is Paul saying here? Is he saying that when you become a Christian, all your problems go away? No, no. We need to put that 
thought aside. What he's saying is that God walks with us. God is with us. And yes, sometimes God intervenes when we call upon him and we ask him to. And he works in mighty ways in our lives, but it, but it's temporary because this is just a temporary world. We're looking to something bigger, something greater. He's giving us this hope that Jesus is coming back again. What's more, Paul says that we live in a broken world and all of creation is broken and itself waits for Jesus' return when his followers will be revealed and at that time, creation will be liberated from bondage and decay. As John talks about in Revelation, a new heaven and a new earth. And we ourselves, we groan inwardly as we await Jesus' return when he will make all things new, including us. So we live in hope, not sight, because no one hopes for things that they already have, right? So Paul says, we wait patiently. I sometimes think I wait a little impatiently. We have this ongoing hope, not a wishy-washy hope that something might happen, but a sure hope based on a promise and based on evidence. We know the brokenness that we live in and that by ourselves, there is nothing that we can do. And we've seen through history how God has remained true to the hope he is building. He promised someone who would smash Satan's head. He promised someone through whom whom the whole world would be blessed. He promised a king in the line of David who would be the Messiah and rescue his people and rule forever. He promised a suffering servant who would pay the price for our sin and make a way for us to be in a relationship with God. He sent a baby to be born to a poor Jewish couple who laid him in a manger because they were stuck in a stable. God became one of us and died a terrible death on a cross to pay the price for our sin. And God raised Jesus from the dead, conquering death, so that one day we too will rise. God did all of this because of his promise and we have this evidence we see in history. And as we see God fulfilling that promise and know that we live in a continuing hope that one day Jesus will return and we will once again walk in God's presence the way Adam and Eve did at the beginning. We have this ongoing advent, this second advent, this second hope and promise that Jesus is going to come. And any day now, he could be here. We see, I I hear people talking, I hear some Christians talking these days. They look at at what's happening in Israel and we could talk about prophecy and that. I don't know we need to dwell on all that stuff other than to say, any day he could come. He could have come last year before any of the other problems started. He could have come 10 years ago. He might come tomorrow, he might come 10 years from now. But until he does, we live in hope. And we anticipate his coming. We live in second advent and we serve him with all that we have, knowing that this temporary suffering that we have is all going to be made whole and well and new. Here are the words of Jesus' disciple Peter in his encouragement to us. First Peter 1, he says this, praise be 
to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. In his great mercy, he has given us new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead and into an inheritance that can never perish, spoil, or fade. You know what an inheritance is, right? It remains an inheritance until you get it. You you don't have it right away. It's something that's yet to come, all right? So we have this inheritance that can never perish, spoil, or fade. This inheritance is kept in heaven for you, who through faith are shielded by God's power until the, you know, even that, God is shielding you with his power. As bad as you think, as bad as your life might be or the things you're facing right now, he's still shielding you. How bad it would be without him, right? We, who through faith are shielded by God's power until the coming of the salvation that is ready to be revealed in the last time. In all this you greatly rejoice, though now for a little while you, have made, you've, you may have had to suffer grief in all kinds of trials. So we have this living hope. It is the promise of God. We need to walk in it, not just in the Advent season, but every day of our lives. Let's pray together. Our Heavenly Father, we look anew at the coming of your Son, Jesus, in this Advent season, and we are reminded, Lord, of why he came, of our need, Lord, of how we live in this broken world brought about by, by sin, by humanity's sin, from the beginning till now, all of us, Lord, We have chosen against you. We have disobeyed you. We have broken our relationship with you. And yet you, Father, are the one who makes it right. You, Father, are the one who walks beside us even now. And you are the one who gives us a hope that we can trust with everything we have. We thank you and praise you in the name of that same Jesus. Amen.